Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Allison Steiner is a professor of climate and space sciences at the University of Michigan and the co-author of several studies on the effects of warming on airborne pollens. Pollens? Pollens. Professor Steiner, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Did you happen to see that article that I was mentioning earlier in the Wall Street Journal where they observed that there was this big thunderstorm and immediately after they were hospitals were overwhelmed with people with severe allergy attacks and asthma attacks? Yeah, so this is a phenomenon known as thunderstorm asthma, um, and the, it really came to, I would say, international attention a few years ago. In 2016, there was an extremely large event in Melbourne, Australia, and it was the coincidence of a very large thunderstorm coming across right at the peak of their grass pollen season. And it led to thousands of people rushing to the emergency room, and unfortunately, several people died in that event due, due, due to acute respiratory um, distress. And so what we've been trying to study here at Michigan is understanding how these types of um, events happen. And so what it seems like is that when pollen gets swept up into sort of these larger storms and gets brought into clouds and come in contact with water, the pollen grains can break apart or rupture and create these tinier particles than are present when we just have it emitted directly from plants. And one of the reasons why this is important is because these smaller particles that happen during this break apart or rupture process, they're smaller and they can reach further down into your airways and trigger this very acute asthma response. You know, maybe I should back up a minute. Explain what is pollen? Yeah, so pollen is actually the small particles that are released from plants as a part of reproduction. Um, and those, and so those, a lot those of are the tr- little particles that bees gather up? Yeah, so the plants use different strategies to try to reproduce. So some plants use bees or birds um, as a way of moving the pollen from plant to plant to fertilize. And so the pollen grain actually contains the male genetic material, and then it'll fertilize the female part of the plant. So some types of plants use bees to transfer that pollen, and and other types, and what's more common around where we are in the Midwest, is, is types of plants that use wind to transport that pollen. And this is actually why we think of pollen season as being such a problem, because a lot of the plants that use wind, they're called anemophilous types of pollen spreading mechanisms, they produce a lot of it so that pollen can get to its intended target. And so this is when we think of in the springtime, you might walk out to your car and you have a coating of pollen on the surface. That's Mm. those anemophilous species. And so a lot of people are allergic to that pollen because it's floating around in the air and the plants are sort of expecting that the wind is going to carry it to fertilize these other plants. And unfortunately, we tend to come into contact with it along its way. Well, what you explained about thunderstorm asthma makes a lot of sense. So explain to me, when they looked at the data in the United States, they found a similar spike in people complaining of severe allergies or severe asthma attacks. But in the United States, the spikes came right before a thunderstorm. What was that mechanism? Yeah, so usually we have like different types of seasons where different types of plants or trees or grasses or weeds might be emitting pollen. So usually what will happen, and you might be, if you're allergic to pollen, you might be allergic to one type of pollen or you might be allergic to lots of different kinds. Um, So usually what we see here in the Midwest is 
we'll see a lot of the deciduous trees start to produce pollen in the springtime. Um, that might be things like birch or oak. A lot of people are allergic to those types of pollen. Um, then we often might see different kinds of evergreen come out. So you might see the pine trees come out next. And then over the summer, we're, the, the grasses emit a lot of pollen. And as we move into the fall, which is what we're kind of wrapping up right now, a lot of the weeds are emitting, are flowering and emitting pollen. So the plants are emitting these tiny, tiny pollen grains, um, you know, from the, from the aspect, like, you know, they're very, they're very small to the naked eye. Um, and they're in the order of maybe about 10 to 50 micrometers. Some of them can be a little bit larger as well. And so when we emit those, like when the plants emit those types of pollen grains, you know, usually as a human, when we come into contact with them, they might, um, you might, your eyes might come into contact. That can cause the, aller- the allergy watering eyes syndrome. Um, they might get stuck in your nasal cavity. That can start your nose running. But a lot of times your upper respiratory defenses will catch those larger particles. And so then you just might have symptoms like a runny nose or watery eyes. The difference with the thunderstorm allergy is those, once the, the pollen grains can break apart, then they make these tinier particles that can get past your upper respiratory defenses and down into your lungs. And that's actually what starts to trigger the sort of breathing types of respiratory distress. I see. When you said a lot of these pollens pollens are 10 to 50 micrometers, I mean, is that... Uh, For those of us who are lay people, is that like the width of a hair or can you give me some... Yeah, that's, I'd say, yeah, so that's about right. I mean, I would say, like, you know, you can usually think about that as being a human hair or a little bit smaller. Um, and those are like what we call coarse particles in the atmosphere. And there's lots of other types of particles that are in there as well. Um, you know, a lot of air quality pollutants also have tiny particles that can get into your lungs. Um, and those tiny particles, again, a lot of times for the health, we use a, a cutoff of around two and a half microns, which is much, much smaller than a human hair. Those are the ones that can make it down into your lungs and trigger um, asthma and other respiratory problems. Hmm. And tell me what influence a, a warming planet has on these problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple different factors. Um, one of the most ones that we think is the most important right now is temperature. So as the planet's warming due to greenhouse gas warming, we're seeing kind of shifts in some of these seasons. And you can think about this even anecdotally about what we've seen where we've had a pretty warm fall here within the Midwest. Um, so that can have a couple different influences. One is it can make um, springtime flowering come a little bit sooner. Um, it can also make those flowering seasons extend a little bit longer. And as we move into the fall, we have ragweed season. It actually pushes the flowering of ragweed later, whereas we might have seen ragweed flowering in September. Now it might be more like in October around here. Um, so temperature is one big factor. Another one is precipitation. Um, so again, having a wet or a dry spring can influence how much pollen plants will produce. And then finally, another factor we've been looking at is the atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide. Um, so carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, and that drives a lot of the warming we're seeing in global atmospheric temperatures. But more CO2 can often influence plants and in how they produce vegetation and biomass, as well as pollen. So one of the thoughts is that as carbon dioxide increases, plants might tend to be a little bit more, um, take up more carbon dioxide, be more productive in this higher CO2 environment. And there's some connections where we think that actually means they might start to produce more pollen based on these higher CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. One of the things that I'm always hearing is, well, you know, with the warmer temperatures and global warming, um, we don't have the same kind of freeze conditions that in the winter used to uh, kill off a lot of this stuff and, and make make the amounts more manageable when what survived finally 
regrew in the spring. How long, how cold does it have to be and for how long to uh, to undo some of this? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, because every type of every different type of tree or plant is going to be is going to respond a little bit differently. Um, and so, you know, in terms of the freeze dates, usually plants are using that to sort of decide when they're going to put out their flowers and then when they're going to put out the leaves. Um, so usually there might be. I mean, we try to put this into models in some way to try to predict when that might happen. And it's a little bit tricky, right? Some might wait until like two or three freezes, and then they'll wait for a certain amount of time. And I make it sound like the plant's actually making this decision <laughs> like a human being, but obviously that's not exactly the case. Um, but, you know, so the freeze dates might mean that they decide to put out, the plants or make the decision to put out the plants, uh, like to put out leaves and flowers a little bit earlier. Um, in the fall, it influences the weed production because, again, it could be pushing it a little bit later, and then also with something like, especially as we move into the fall season with ragweed, as we have more of these freezes, they're eventually going to kill off those weeds. So the fall effects of the freeze are a little bit different than the spring effects, if that makes sense. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um, we need to, uh, Dr. Steiner, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Dr. Allison Steiner, who's a professor of climate and space sciences at the University of Michigan. We're going to talk more about climate change when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Well, if the subject of climate change or climate crisis comes up at your Thanksgiving uh, table and you have relatives who say, oh, don't have to worry about that. That's, you know, decades away, maybe even more, maybe like 100 years away. No, actually, we are starting to feel the fallout Right here, right now, there's been new data, at least new for lay people, probably not new for scientists, that's been reported that if you know somebody who has really bad allergies or really bad asthma, warn them that they now should pay a little bit more attention to the weather report, particularly if a thunderstorm is predicted, because sometimes right before a thunderstorm and or right after a thunderstorm, there can be this massive pollen trigger. And even worse, the pollen is broken up into these tiny little bits that really get deep into your lungs. So uh, is it too late, Dr. Steiner? Um, I'm talking to Allison Steiner, professor of climate and space sciences at the University of Michigan. I mean, this is already happening, so it's too late, right? No, it's definitely not too late. And one thing we can see is, you know, when we've tried to project out into the future how pollen will change, you know, out to what climate scientists often call it, you know, the end of century or 2100. And that's usually like our long view of climate. And the pathways look very different depending upon what happens with emissions. So even while we've seen these historical changes, we can definitely slow that increasing trajectory um, if we can curb greenhouse gas emissions. Interesting. And, you know, for those of you who are thinking, well, I don't really I just have a little bit of a problem with allergies. There was in when I was looking through some of the background on this, there is some evidence that even though you, this might not be a phenomenon that sends you to the hospital, it could make you more, more vulnerable to other viruses. Could you explain that? Yeah, that research is still very conflicting at this point in time. Um, there are some studies that are showing association between, you know, if you if you are someone who suffers from allergic um, symptoms, how susceptible you are to other respiratory viruses. Um, I'm not a medical doctor myself, and so I really can't speak too much, but I do look at that literature. And I would say the studies are still conflicting. You know, we really are trying to understand um, how allergies might set you up 
for other types of respiratory problems. But I would say at this point, it's still a very um, uncertain link. Interesting. And tell me, does this have a greater effect on young children? And is it true what I've been reading on and off over the years that part of the reason why kids seem to be having more allergies is because we made our lives and our houses too clean? Yeah, that is one of the current theories. Again, I'm not a medical doctor and I'm not an allergy specialist. I mostly study the pollen in the air. Um, but it is true that, you know, as we're seeing uh, the concentrations of pollen increase in the atmosphere, that means that you're going to be exposed more. And so especially for young children, as they're being exposed more and more, there is this possibility that more people might start to develop these allergies. I think many people are familiar with the fact that, um, you know, you can you can develop allergies, especially to pollen at any point in time of your life. And I'm sure you've heard many anecdotal stories or many of your listeners will have this experience where, you know, they never have allergies until they move to City X. And then all of a sudden they're exposed to a different allergen and they develop a sensitivity to it. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, we don't want to, you know, trees are a part of our lives. Um, this is something you know, we don't want to say don't go outside. However, it is something to be aware of if you start to develop sensitivities and understanding when pollen might be high, that can help you manage your symptoms. How is pollen different than molds? I mean, I've heard people say, you know, uh, I'm allergic to tree mold. Is that a is that mm-hmm. what is that? Is that a kind of a pollen? Well, molds are not. So molds are not actually pollen grains. Um, it's, it's, molds are produced by fungal spores. And again, it's another particle that they're using for reproduction. The spores are actually the reproductive component of the fungi. Um, and so they can be dispersed into the atmosphere in the same way that pollen is. Um, and some, so in some locations across the United States where people are counting pollen and tracking it, they're also tracking molds because many people have a mold allergy as well. Can they be broken down into itty-bitty pieces and get deep in your lungs too? <laughs> Yeah, that's another thing that they found. In general, mold spores are much smaller. You know, I would say, you know, they tend to be around the order of one to 10 microns. So they're, they're smaller than pollen grains. But both have shown evidence in the laboratory that they can rupture into these or fragment into these smaller particles that can get deep in your lungs. Good grief. Um, <laughs> I did not have seasonal allergies until I turned 40. I have always mm-hmm. lived in the same part of the country. So, um I thought this was a particularly hideous aspect of getting older. <laughs> and I have to tell you, is, it, um, is this one of the times of the year, you know, you've said you've talked about the fall. Is this one of the times of the year where people have to be especially careful right now? Um, well, we're kind of closing out, I would say, once we've had, we've had a couple of freezes here in Michigan. Um, so a lot of the, the flowering is going to be concluded at this point. So generally the fall allergies, people are allergic to things like ragweed or other types of weeds. They tend to flower um, towards the end of the summer and into the fall. So, you know, what types of plants an individual is sensitive to really depends upon the person. Um, and again, you can develop sensitivities to plants to different types of plants over the course of your lifetime. So if you notice that you're starting to develop allergic symptoms, again, that like watering eyes, the runny nose in the fall, it probably means that you're allergic to things like ragweeds or weeds. If you notice it predominantly in the spring, um, then it's probably some different types of trees. You talked at the beginning of this interview about thunderstorm asthma, but we didn't call it just rainfall asthma. So Mm -hmm. is it the, is it the, Um, high winds? Is it the barometric pressure? What makes the thunderstorm so special? 
Yeah, this is something we're still trying to understand as well. When we try to study it in the laboratory, we can rupture of those particles under a lot of different moist conditions. Even something like a high relative humidity in the atmosphere can cause rupture. So the question is, what, what is special about the thunderstorms? Um, and that's something we've been trying to use computer models to understand. Um, you know, one theory is that the high updrafts, you know, when sort of winds are sort of sucked up into the thunderstorm, the idea is that the pollen can be sucked up and ruptured in the cloud and then recirculated with those sort of strong downward moving um, parcels of air that come off a thunderstorm. Um, so it might be something about the high winds um, that trigger it. Other people have postulated that it's lightning, that actually the os- really? sort of osmotic shock, yeah, that lightning can trigger it. Um, you know, personally, I kind of think it, ha- I think it has something more to do with the moisture that drives the rupture than the lightning, although the lightning could certainly probably rupture a pollen grain as well. But this is something we're still trying to understand. We don't have very good field data about this, and so we try to use computer models to understand when and where it would happen. You used the phrase osmotic shock. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. It means you're kind of really triggering the pressure within the cell of the, that pollen grain, and so the lightning sort of causes this sort of big jolt, I mean literally a jolt, that'll, that'll cause the membranes in the pollen grain to rupture. In the Wall Street Journal article where I was reading about the horrible incidents of uh, asthma after they had a big thunderstorm, um, they said in that article that, at least in Australia, the medical experts were sort of sounding an alarm that if you were somebody who is susceptible to severe allergy attacks or that has bad asthma, that when a thunderstorm is in the offing, that it would be wise to stay inside. Is that an overreaction? Um, well, I think in Melbourne, they were very specifically concerned about the, you know, the really large event that they had. Um, you know, when people have observed it in other events, it hasn't been quite as acute. And, and as you mentioned, the, the article, the study that was published in the Wall Street Journal sort of suggested that we, they didn't see that with other data. There have been a few cases reported around the United States, but it's not as it doesn't seem to be quite as big of a problem here as it might have been where they had it in Australia with a very large grass season. So I think they're just taking a very preventative approach and they're trying to do better forecasting about when these types of events may happen. So, um, you know, again, just preventing human suffering and also loss of life in that case. I read about climate change all the time and the accumulation of CO2. And, you know, I read about what the methane that comes out of cows and, and how if we all just went to a vegetarian diet, it would be so much better. If we didn't fly on so many commercial aircraft, life would be so much better. In your, in your life, what do you do to try to minimize or reduce uh, the production of carbon dioxide? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's kind of two aspects to it. One is you know, so how we how we take on personal responsibility, and in terms of my own personal life, I do try to consolidate or you know consolidate air, airline travel as much as I can um, and try to minimize it when possible. Although obviously in today's world that can be really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing, also trying to minimize driving. Um, and, you know, riding bikes whenever I can, although, you know, really it depends on the time of year. You know, you live in a cold climate as well. And so sometimes that's that's not always reasonable. And so I think it also comes back to, you know, there are larger responsibilities from corporations in terms of how we deal with fossil fuel companies and what kinds of, um, you know, what kinds of approaches we can have on the larger level, not just as on the individual level. So I think it's really going to be a combination of these types of factors as we move to, especially as we move towards the clean and hopefully moving more towards the clean energy economy. We've all talked about how it seems like 
um, all the places where we like to live, they're they're getting warmer. I know I have family members who go to Arizona and uh, the summers in Arizona are much worse than they were 15 years ago here in the Chicago area. I mean, who knows if that's a trend, but I remember last January, I think we had one or two days in the 70s, not that it didn't get cold. Is it a question of there's less time getting cold or is it shifting? Like you said, things that used to happen in September now are happening in November. We had some warm days in January, but we still had plenty of cold weather in March and April. Is, 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 the, is the calendar for weather just shifting? I mean, I think we do. We are seeing an increase in baseline temperatures across the board, you know, in, term, in terms of certain seasons. Um, you know, I think in the Midwest, we're in a particularly interesting climatological region. You know, we're still going to have cold winters. You know, Chicago's still going to have its cold winter. Michigan's still going to have its snow. Um, but what we're probably going to see is also, in addition to some of that moving of the baseline, we're also going to see changes in the extreme events, especially extreme heat events. You know, if we're talking about health impacts and allergies, extreme heat effects on health are also going to be really substantial. And that's something we have to keep an eye on as well. Is this going to get worse before it gets better? <laughs> I mean, the trajectory we're on right now, we're sort of on a, I feel like I sometimes call it like a slow burn. Um, and what really happens is what's going to happen in the next, you know, where we really see the temperatures diverging is in the second half of this century. So basically from 2050 to 2100. And that's where the choices we make now are going to make a big difference then in, in terms of what we do about emissions. And so I do think I'm very much optimistic that things can get better um, as we've had awareness and understanding of how these events are impacting people's lives. We've definitely seen more action. And, and so I am optimistic that we'll see some changes in the next several decades. Several decades? I thought you were going to say in the next couple of years. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think we're going to have to make some emissions changes in the next few years. But we're going to see the climate effects, um, you know, take their time to, to start to sort of slow down and resolve. All right. Well, I will try to stay alive that long to see the light <laughs> at the end of this tunnel. Uh, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Dr. Allison Steiner, professor of climate and space sciences at the University of Michigan. She has uh, co-authored a lot of studies on the effects of warming on airborne pollens, a problem that uh, seems to be getting worse right now. Um, hopefully that will change in the next few decades. Allison, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We are going to take a break for news, and we're going to get back to politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. We're joined now by Alex Trayman, who's a Jerusalem Bureau Chief of Jewish News Syndicate and an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. As your position of bureau chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, you must be overwhelmed now with uh, the the coverage that um, that you are being required to provide. Can you bring us up to speed on the very latest of the situation in Israel and Gaza? Sure. Right now, uh, what is really at this moment, right, even before this, uh, I jumped onto this call, you know, we're trying to sort out whether um, as many as 100 bodies were found in a building next to the Al-Shifa hospital. Uh, we have it confirmed that one of them was 65-year-old uh, 
hostage, uh, Yehudi Weiss, uh, from Kibbutz Berry in the south. But it is believed that there might have been as many as 200 other bodies found uh, and possibly that uh, could be many hostages among them. There were also reports that um, inside the main hospital in Gaza that Israeli defense forces found evidence that indeed Hamas had been using the hospital as some kind of a base. Can you tell us what you know about that? Well, for weeks, uh, the IDF had been making the case that Hamas was using the Al-Shifa hospital as one of its uh, command and control centers uh, deep in Gaza City in the northern Gaza Strip. And uh, they did go in uh, after announcing that they would over a period of days. They finally went in uh, in the last uh, 24 to 48 hours. Um, We've seen videos uh, with IDF spokespersons, and they've also brought in uh, Fox journalists and BBC journalists into the basement. We've seen uh, what looks to be weapons that were left there, but uh, probably much of the weaponry, which was uh, believed to have been within the hospital, it entered the hospital um, either via the doors, which were left open uh, for patients and doctors and anybody else to go into the hospital under civilian cover, and also through the tunnels, which are all around the and potentially below the hospital as well. For some people, this information seems uh, to have been a surprise. And I don't really understand why that is, since it is very publicly acknowledged by very many people, not all of whom are reporters, that this is how Hamas operates. They hide their material, they hide their personnel in places that are surrounded by, filled by civilians. When are people finally going to take that bit of information in? You know, it's hard to understand. I know that it's a very uh, politically charged conflict, obviously, and has been uh, for decades, really. Um, But you know, Hamas, at the end of the day, is, is a horrific terror organization. It's really been holding the people of Gaza hostage uh, since 2006, 2007, when they took over the Strip. Uh, they know they can't defeat the IDF in a war. The IDF is one of the strongest militaries in the entire world uh, with significant air power, air power and, and really precise military equipment. So so how do they they hope to win a war? And, and part of the way they, they hope to, to win is in the battle of of uh, narrative warfare and psychological warfare, and that's delegitimizing Israel. So the way that they do that is that they hide among civilians in actual hopes that the maximum number of civilian casualties will be inflicted by the IDF. And that's also why they hide inside hospitals and mosques and schools. And they put the IDF in a difficult situation as to whether or not to attack, bomb, or enter into mosques, schools, and hospitals. Uh, because when when they do that, then the international community and, and others that really are not interested in, in looking deep and identifying the facts uh, will we'll say Israel is a, Israel is a immoral force attacks hospitals and kills civilians. I agree with you that Hamas is uh, taking the Palestinian people and everybody else they can find in Gaza, any resident of Gaza, as as a potential shield or hostage. And yet in elections not all that long ago, uh, a couple of representatives from Hamas were voted into office. 
Am I misunderstanding something? Uh, is that a different part of Hamas? Is there a military wing and a governmental political wing? Did the people not understand who they were voting for? People understand very well who Hamas is. It's in their charter. You know, they, they have never tried to hide you know, what their intentions were with regard to, to attacking Israel and, and trying to remove Israel off the face of the map. Um, and they voted in Hamas in elections in 2006. Um, and there's no difference between the military bureau of Hamas and the, and the political bureau of Hamas. So, for example, when you're hearing from the Gaza Health Ministry, they say that uh, at this point, I think they're reporting that over 11,000 people have been killed inside the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Health Ministry is an organ of Hamas. This, this is yeah. Hamas. Hamas is both the political and the military. And I've been... And, you know, and there's also... When we first started getting numbers from the health ministry, there were reporting outlets that said, here's the numbers from the health ministry, but you should know that this is a Hamas-controlled organization. So, and, and yet now, as this has, um, story has been ongoing, I no longer see many of those disclaimers. But we need to remember where this information is coming from to be able to put it into context and to be able to perhaps at times be skeptical of the figures that were being given. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, well, I, I think that you're right. And, and, but, you know, even if you would take the maximum number right now that the uh, Gaza health ministry is reporting, let's say 11,000 people, you're not, you're not being told within that number, if that is the uh, a correct number, which really can't be verified, but you're not being told how many of those 11,000 uh, are Hamas operatives that were, you know, involved in direct fighting or shootouts with the IDF when they were killed. Uh, you're not told within that number how many people were killed by what's been reported to be as many as 900 rockets that were fired from the Gaza Strip toward Israel that misfired, that landed inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, how many of those rockets may have killed? Um, so we, you, it's not uh, for certain that the, the number that they're reporting even refers to, to citizens or citizens that were killed by the IDF, you know, and, and in, in addition to that, um, you know, it's it even if that number was the correct number, considering that Hamas is hiding its its militants and it's all of its military infrastructure under civilian infrastructure, under civilian uh, houses and mosques and schools and, and, and the like, uh, the amount of effort that the IDF is has gone to to reduce the number of civilian casualties. You could only imagine another military, if they would have come through in a similar situation, uh, there probably would have been exponentially more people killed. It's it's really people don't understand how surgically the IDF is going in uh, in order to try to separate uh, the militants uh, from the civilians there. It really, if you, I think if you're paying attention, which I don't think most people do, you can get a, you can get a feel for that. The other thing I want to ask you about is there was, of course, a big demonstration at the National Mall on Tuesday, a big rally in support of Israel and also not just in support of Israel, but also to condemn the anti-Semitism that seems to have erupted in the wake of a terrorist attack on Israeli civilians, were you shocked by the wave of anti-Semitism that came in the wake of an attack on Israel? 
Well, the reason why I'm not shocked is because we've actually been seeing this uh, anti-Semitism simmering, really, I would say, for as many as as two decades or or more. It started on the university campuses with the Israel apartheid weeks uh, that taking place as as long as 20 years ago. Uh, You know, we've seen on social media and in the comments below articles on YouTube and Yahoo News, even in the 90s, there would just be a a lot of latent anti-Semitism. And so this has really just been continuously boiling to the surface and and almost waiting for an event like this to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is, in a way, it's it's a bit of a shock to see how quickly it it has ramped up to this very high level, uh, not just in the United States, but even around the I was talking to uh, last month uh, to somebody from the um, um, from the ADL and Anti-Defamation League, and they said that any time, any time, basically anything happens to put Israel or or Jews in the in the spotlight in the in the media spotlight, you can count on an uptick in anti-Semitism. Last I saw, the um, um, they were reporting over an over 600% increase in anti-Semitic acts, vandalism, and speech since October 7th. I, I don't know how you feel about that, but that just breaks my heart. Well, I mean, more than break your heart, I think we have a situation in which it's it's really becoming dangerous for for Jews in the United States, you know, particularly in university campuses, particularly in, in inner cities where, where crime is on the rise uh, in general and hate crimes are on the rise in general. Uh, the situation for, for Jews living living in America, you know, is, is quickly turning toward the situation as it is in Paris and, and other cities. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's more than sad. I think people really have to, to take stock of what's happened. And, and unfortunately, they have to take precautions to protect the Jewish institutions and protect themselves as well. Right after the October 7th um, terrorist attacks, you know, I reached out to my Jewish friends and wanted to know if they were okay, most of whom really appreciated just kind of touching base. But since then, just I feel sort of helpless. I feel like this is a problem that's bigger than one person. So tell me, Alex, what can one person do to make this situation better? Well, that, that's a tricky question. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, unity is very important, and you see so much disinformation uh, flying on, on social media. And you know, obviously, you have an incredible platform which you're using now to to get some of this information uh, to light. And I think that that's really what has to happen here is just as much information has to get spread, and, and we should talk to each other and, and and tell them about who's on the the side of morality and who's on the side of immorality uh, in this battle. Um, standing together with Israel in, in visible ways is is very useful, uh, I think, toward for the people of Israel to see that, that they're being supported so they don't feel isolated in this moment. Um, and also, uh, you know, just to, to recognize that a lot of divisiveness, uh, probably, you know, political divisiveness and, and other divisiveness has, has led the enemies of uh, the Jewish people in the West to, to think that, that the West and Israel are, are vulnerable. Right now, and so uh, you know, I, I think that there's some sort of uh, reckoning needs to take place, you know, and to try to uh, to try to to ask ourselves whether all of this uh, political divisiveness that's kind of like uh, 
um, invading our societies if, if that's uh, not weakening us to, to a large extent in the, in the eyes of enemies that seek to destroy our cultures. Um, we have to take a break, but when we come back, um, Tom Hartman, who's the host before me, he was interviewing a reporter who was in Ukraine talking, had been in Ukraine a year ago, was in Ukraine now and was talking about the differences. And one of the things that he commented on was that when he was in Ukraine a year ago, it was filled with reporters from all over the world. And he said that that's one of the things that most jumped out at him was that there were all the reporters from Ukraine had moved uh, on to Israel. And it was there was speculation that Putin may have um, been supportive of Hamas for just that reason to sort of take the heat off of him. Uh, You mentioned politics. I want to get into more of the politics of the what's going on in the world and what's going on in Israel. I'm speaking with Alex Trayman, who's the Jerusalem bureau chief of the Jewish News Syndicate. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Alex Trayman, who is the Jerusalem bureau chief of the Jewish News Syndicate. And I was talking about how on Tom Hartman's show today, a reporter in Ukraine said that there were no more reporters in Ukraine, that he was running around, uh, you know, not seeing anybody anywhere because they'd all moved on to Israel, which they felt that was something that if he hadn't directly engineered it, Putin, by supporting Hamas, was certainly pleased to have the world's uh, eyes and ears looking in a different direction for a while. What to talk about that relationship between Putin and Hamas and what there is to be gained by either side? Well, I think you're right that uh, Vladimir Putin is one of the primary beneficiaries of this conflict that really otherwise benefits not. Um, you know, for a while, it, it's actually a pretty complex story because uh, for when the United States, you know, really moved out of the Middle East and, and Syria was in a civil war, there was a vacuum that was created for power, and uh, Vladimir Putin filled in that vacuum, and, and they had uh, troops on the ground inside Syria, and the other force that was inside Syria was was Iran, uh, and the IDF, of course, didn't want uh, Iran to be transferring. Uh, weapons across Iran, through Iraq, uh, through Syria, and into southern Lebanon, and get into Hezbollah. So they would be attacking the IDF would inside Syria when these movements would take place, and they continued to do that. Um, and in order for, for the IDF to operate in, in southern Syria, they had to have deconfliction mechanisms together with uh, Russia, with Vladimir Putin, because there was actually an incident at one point where where Syrian air defenses shot down a Russian plane, believing that it was an IDF plane. You know, so there was a relationship that was that was developed uh, of sort of mutual respect between Israel and Russia. Not that it was an alliance, but that there was an understanding uh, there and. Vladimir Putin even visited Israel. Um, Once the Russia-Ukraine war began, uh, Israel was under a lot of pressure from the United States and Europeans to side uh, with Ukraine, which it, of course, from a moral perspective, agreed with completely. From a national security perspective, was hesitant because they understood that they needed this freedom of operation to move in Syria as a national security concern. Uh, yet they did, they were pressured to, to side with, uh, 
with Ukraine, and they did. Um, and as a result, uh, the, the relationship between Russia and Israel soured. Uh, not only that, but that Iran uh, has actually cozied up to Russia since the war has began. And we've seen uh, that Iran has provided uh, drones and other weaponry uh, to the Russians as well as energy. Uh, so we're seeing this uh, Russia, which was kind of uh, playing a more neutral role in the Middle East, is closely aligned itself with Iran, which is the main uh, funder of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. While we're talking about politics, one of the things that shocked me in the immediate wake of the terrorist attack was how so many people seemingly could not separate their feelings about the Netanyahu government with whether or not civilians deserved to be raped and murdered which I just thought was staggering in an inability to chew gum and walk at the same time. I do uh, think, I mean, I've never been a fan of Benjamin Netanyahu, but that doesn't mean that I have any any sympathies at all for the terrorists who committed these horrible attacks on what were 90, 95% just as civilians. Talk to me about the Netanyahu government, how you see it functioning now and whether or not you think he can survive this in the long in the long run. Sure. You know, Netanyahu is certainly the most polarizing figure in Israel today. I mean, he's been Israel's longest serving prime minister, 16 years in office, Um, even though he he's strongly considered to be a right wing prime minister. He's been very. risk averse when it comes to military operations. In fact, many people in Israel are now blaming him uh, for signing various ceasefire agreements with Hamas uh, over the years, allowing uh, Qatari funding to come in to Gaza to fund Hamas, you know, all that was allowed by Netanyahu because he, he tried to avoid the conflict that uh, Israel is currently engaged in. Um, inside Israel right now, people, you know, are are asking a lot of questions about how the massacre on October 7th could have possibly happened, you know, both from the point of view of Israel's superior intelligence, which should have led uh, security officials to, to understand that an attack this large was being planned right under their nose, uh, but even more so how once the the border was breached in the morning of October 7th, why it took security forces so many hours uh, to get to the south, um, and to allow for so many people to have been killed and to allow for 240 hostages to have been taken back across the Gazan border. Um, you know, that said, there is a feeling that uh, Netanyahu is probably the best man to lead the country through this conflict. And we've seen you know, President Joe Biden and uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and many other leaders coming through, all of them taking meetings with Netanyahu, uh, while at the same time the prime minister has to lead the IDF into battle. And so far, uh, the the military campaign has been extremely successful by all accounts. And not to say that this war is over, it may not even be halfway over. We don't really know. But uh, so far, the military campaign inside Gaza has been extremely successful. I think for Netanyahu to survive politically, his only choice is to have a 
conclusive win, so conclusive and comprehensive that all sides, both the Israeli public and Hamas, understand that Israel won this war. I think you'd have to have like an unconditional surrender from Hamas at the end of this. Uh, I think if, if Netanyahu delivers anything less than a, a comprehensive victory, um, yeah, I think it's likely that his political career could come to an end. We, uh, on this radio station, we talk about the 2024 elections coming up in this country and how we can prepare for misinformation and disinformation. But we saw a preview, if you will, when the October 7th terrorist attack occurred. I can't remember if it was a week or two later. Um, I saw a video on social media that was posted of a young woman. Uh, I don't want to, you know, uh, say that I think that college students have a lot to learn, but she was a a young woman who appeared to be of college age, and she was in London, and she was taking down flyers that had the faces and names of those who had been taken hostage. And the person shooting the video walked up to her and said, why are you doing that? And she said, because this is all a lie. These people haven't been. This is all a lie. This is all propaganda. These people have not been taken by Hamas. What do you do in the face of something like that? Yeah, I think it goes to what, what, the way you frame the question, which is uh, the way information flies on social media right now. And, uh, and also due to a lot of distrust in, in mainstream media, you know, people get information and they just run with it. And they, they let themselves be informed by tweets and by TikTok videos. Um, and, and people take their decisions on the basis of, you know, unbelievable Lies. I, I mean, I, I think that, that people don't really understand Israel and Israelis. Um, and, you know, people can think what they want about the Netanyahu government or the IDF, but the people of Israel are, are beautiful people. And there are so many families right now that have been torn to pieces, you know, with, with over 1,200 people killed, thousands of people injured. Nobody's even talking about the injured. And, and of course, 240 families uh, that have loved ones uh, in, in limbo right now, potentially held hostage in, in Gaza or elsewhere. It, it's, it's, it's really a, it's a dangerous situation that we, we live in where, where, you know, the most basic black and white information uh, gets completely distorted and misinterpreted. Um, we have to break uh, our uh, interview right now. We have to go to news. Uh, I'm speaking with Alex Trayman, and I really appreciate your time, Alex. He is the Jerusalem Bureau Chief of the Jewish News Syndicate. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. We're going to be back with more after this. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. There is need, of course, year-round. But when we start to count our blessings around the holidays, when we start to think about our families and our friends, it is a time when those of us who may not always pay attention to the need really focus on the fact that there are people who are going hungry, that there are people who need warm clothing. Last Friday... I interviewed Buffalo Grove Fire Department Battalion Chief Sean Collins. Uh, He is overseeing the Wheeling and Buffalo Grove Rotary Club's food box giveaway for Thanksgiving. But uh, there are food pantries that work year-round 
to try to help out those who are going through tough times and who otherwise might not have good, healthy food to feed their families. Right now, I'm going to be talking with um, Man Yi Li, who is the Director of Communications at the Greater Chicago Food Depository. Um, Man Yi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Now, just um, just to clear up some confusion on my part, is a food yeah. depository the same thing as a food bank? Ah, that's a great question. <laughs> Thank you for asking that to clarify. Yes. So we are basically the Greater Chicago Food Depository. We are what we call a food bank. And what we do is we raise funds, collect funds, and uh, work with the federal government through the USDA to uh, procure and to um, secure food so that we can distribute out to our network of more than 800 uh, partner food pantries, soup kitchens, and shelters, and provide all this food free of charge to them so that they can help us get out to the community. Someone told me recently that sometimes the best way to contribute to a food pantry is with a donation of money rather than going out and buying actual food items because um, a lot of food pantries work with wholesalers and basically can get more product for the same amount of money. How do you feel about that? Yes, that is a great point. Yes, we always welcome donations. We 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 we, we welcome all kinds of support, but particularly monetary donations, and here's why. Every dollar that is donated to a food bank, we are able to procure the, uh, the equivalent um, of ingredients for food, um, for um, the equivalent of three meals. And that is, um, we're able to make the dollar stretch far more than, say, the average consumer who is going to their average grocery store uh, to uh, to buy and purchase um, food items. Um, so we are able to uh, capitalize and really benefit um, from the um, great uh, partnerships we have with food suppliers um, in order to uh, really stretch the dollar uh, so that we can buy more food. Which is not to say that um, at least none of the food pantries that I'm aware of will turn down donations if people show up with actual food. Well, they're just they can make a dollar go further than I can make a dollar go at the grocery store. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, of course, we, we don't don't turn away any kind of support. Food is food, and we don't like to waste any food. Uh, make sure that it gets out to families in need so that they can put food on the table. But, uh, yes, if, if purely if you're asking us um, what our preference is, yes, um, monetary donations just really help us to, to, to serve more people and to, to, to help, um, you know, purchase more food. And people can always uh, do a virtual food drive. They can always um, help set up a, a virtual food drive, put it on their Facebook account, ask people to donate. And every dollar, as I mentioned, every dollar we can turn into three meals. This is something that I didn't realize. I saw a post on social media, oh, a month or so ago, somebody who had spent a lot of time 
working at uh, food pantries. And they said, you know, lots of people donate these kinds of items. But what you may be surprised at is um, there's a great need for other items. And I was it never I'm going to reveal my ignorance here. I never realized that a lot of food pantries have big refrigeration units because they said, you know, it's great to donate rice aroni, but how about also donating some butter so that it's like, you know, they could actually make the rice aroni the way it's supposed to be supposed to be made. And it never occurred to me that perishable things could be donated to food pantries. Yes, that, that is that's a really great point. Yeah. Well, what we do here is we also um, we we it's not just about feeding people. It's about feeding people with healthy, nutritious food. And so what we do at the Greater Chicago Food Depository, we put a big focus on healthy, nutri- nutritious, fresh produce. Because everyone deserves to have, you know, access to fresh produce and healthy food. And so with those monetary donations, a lot of those donations are used to buy fresh produce that we then um, distribute out to these pantries and soup kitchens and shelters that we partner with. And that's when they need cold storage. Yeah, you're correct. They, they, they need cold storage in order to keep um, food like milk, eggs, uh, protein, you know, to keep mm-hmm. them because we deliver once a week, uh, huge shipments we deliver to our pantries, 800 pantries and soup kitchens and shelters across Chicago and Cook County. Um, and they need to make that food last for the whole week because they have maybe two or three uh, food distribution events a week and they want, don't want that food to spoil. And so cold storage is crucial. And so, um, yeah, we help with that. We try to help with some of our uh, partner pantries who do need, um, uh, you know, extra funds so that they can buy a cold storage uh, unit and so that they can, um, you know, store more food and then help more people in, in, in need. Did you find that during the pandemic, the need increased greatly? I would imagine so, since a lot of people were out of work and didn't necessarily have a financial cushion. Yeah, that is exactly what we found. And also, if you think about it, a lot of people lost their jobs during the pandemic. Um, And when you still have kids to feed and you still have families to feed, what are you going to do? You're going to try and get any job that you were, you know, so a lot of people were underemployed, what we call mm-hmm. underemployed, right? N- not earning as much, but still earning. And so what that in turn is, that's only enough to pay the rent. It, it only goes so far. And so that's what we've been seeing is that people have been coming to pantries um, and relying on the services of food pantries in order to supplement their household groceries because they're just simply not earning um, as much as they used to. I mean, right now I will tell you that one in four families with children in the Chicago metro area are currently facing food insecurity. Now, that is the same level that we were seeing at the beginning of the pandemic. People think wow. that the that people think that food insecurity and hunger has gone away with the pandemic. That is simply not true. We are seeing it every day um, in our partner pantries. Uh, our network of partner pantries are serving 20% more guests um, in, in October last month than they did in October of 2022. So that just gives you some really? idea. Of, mm-hmm. And That's the reason for that is you... 
if you're interested. So the reasons for that is, you know, lots of things. If you, you, you mentioned the pandemic. Yes, people there are still very financially insecure from the, uh, from the pandemic that rocked a lot of households, I believe. But also with the rising inflation and escalated, um, elevated food prices that happened right after the pandemic, right, and supply chain issues. And, um, and that all that is a cumulative effect of what real families in our communities are dealing with these days. Um, and that is going to take a toll on any family. Um, we hear about two-income households, uh, you know, um, single-income uh, households, um, people of, of, of all kinds, um, families and individuals who are now relying on food pantries and the, and the food that they're getting at food pantries to supplement their household incomes and groceries. Is there any community where there where hunger is not a problem i believe it affects every community in um you know in in chicago and cook county but there are 40 priority populations priority communities that we focus on uh, we did a huge study um during the pandemic that really prompted us to kind of really make sure that we were uh, serving the need where the need is and so um a lot of those communities we um we make a targeted effort to make sure that those pantries and soup kitchens and shelters in those communities get the food that they need in order to help our neighbors in need. And how, how do you identify these communities? Uh, we, we, we have a lot of partners throughout the communities and we, you know, we look at a lot of data, um, including census data, poverty data, you know, uh, the number of people who are on SNAP benefits, what they used to call food stamps in Illinois, uh, uh, you know, any um, young families who are uh, using um, WIC, the WIC program, you know, um, any of these um, we draw information and data from um, people who are also using public benefits um, and then also looking at poverty numbers and, and things like that um, in order to, 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 to determine um, which, which neighborhoods need the most help. There's, um, there's more that I want to ask you about this, but we need to take a, a break. I'm talking to Manny Lee, who is the Director of Communications at the Greater Chicago Food Depository. We'll be right back after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. You know what time it is? Hello. Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Now on WCPT 820. And as we all get ready for the holidays, um, started off by Thanksgiving, it is time to count your blessings and to think about those who could maybe use a little bit of help. I'm talking to Manya Lee, who is the Director of Communications at the Greater Chicago Food Depository. And Manya, you said a little while ago that one of the causes of food insecurity is structural racism. Uh, connect the dots there for us, if you would. Well, yeah, I mean, there are, um, let's face it, a lot of communities um, who do not have the access um, to all the resources that they need in order to, to thrive. And, um, you know, that is, I think, deep-rooted in a lot of um, systemic inequities that are um, that exist in our communities, not just in Chicago, right, in, and not just in the U.S., um, 
But um, yeah, and so what we what we are trying to do is to try and uh, level the playing field to make sure that everybody in our community has the access um, to food um, and to the resources that they need in order to thrive. And for a program, um, I know that the Food Depository works with a lot of food pantries. Do you just walk in and say, boy, I really need some help? Is there a process? Do you have to get approved? Do you have to get um, go through a social service organization to get this kind of help? Mm, yeah, so we and our network of pantries um, across Chicago and Cook County, we serve and we are proud to serve anyone in need. Um, you can walk into um, any pantry. You can go onto our website at chicagosfoodbank.org. If, you, if any of your listeners um, are in need of food or if they know of anybody in need of food, because this can be our neighbors, you never know what's happening in, 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 you know, next door or people may have just lost their jobs. Everyone needs help once in a while. And you can just go into, um, go onto that website, uh, use the find food tool, which you can just put in your zip code and um, that will uh, locate the uh, closest food pantry in your area. And you can, you can call if you want to call ahead just to make sure. But most of our food pantries um, do not ask for um, identity or anything like that. Really, all they just ask for is maybe um, sometimes just a proof of address so that they know that you live in the area uh, that they serve. Mm-hmm. How should you handle it if you have a friend or a colleague or a family member who you think um, could use some help, is food insecure? How do you tell them what the resources are? How do you have that conversation? Well, first of all, what I always say is that, because um, we try to break down the stigma, right? Uh, there's, yeah. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot, we hear time and time again, actually, Joan, a lot of people say, when we ask, if you are food insecure, what is the number one reason why you do not come forward to get help? And you will be surprised. A lot of people say it's because I don't want to take food away from somebody else that needs it more oh than I goodness. do. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we hear that time and time again. And what we always try to say is everybody, especially after the pandemic, everybody once in a while needs help. You know, we are all one health bill away or one job loss away from needing help. And so this is why we exist. This is why we are here. We fundraise and we we couldn't do any of this work without our amazing supporters. We fundraise, we get this support and we buy this food and get out into the communities specifically for this reason. We are here to help. So there is people, there should be no reason. People should just please, we just recommend that they just please go onto our website if they're looking for food like I said, use a fine food tool and um, they can get some food to put, to put food on the table. Um, we talked about donations and my incredible ignorance in thinking that some, for some reason perishables or fresh food couldn't be donated to a pantry because I didn't realize that most of them have large refrigeration units. And as a matter of fact, I don't remember. I wish I had 
Uh, I wish I'd made a copy of that social media post where somebody said, you know, I worked in food pantries for years. You know, everybody drops off rice aroni, but very few people, you know, drop off the butter that you need to cook rice aroni in. And that things like milk even is something mm-hmm. that people can donate. And I would never have thought something that perishable uh, could be could be donated to a food pantry. What else don't I know about what you can donate? Uh, well, not just donations as well. Of course, that really helps us. We also, uh, another thing that I, I would love to, to, to mention also is people can help join the movement to end hunger by also helping to volunteer. Um, this is also uh, not very well known too. People can volunteer at our food uh, depository here in Archer Heights at our warehouse, but also at um, any of their local food pantries. Again, go onto our chicagosfoodbank.org website and uh, find their closest pantry. And if you think about it, a lot of the food that we purchase or that we get donated or we get from USDA, uh, from the federal government, arrives at our warehouse in bulk. And I'm talking big, big, you know, pounds, you know, thousands of pounds of food um, in boxes. And we need many hands to help us break down that food into more manageable portions. So we have bags and we have, you know, uh, boxes where people can help us to um, pack maybe um, 20 potatoes into a box so that... (laughs) So that we can take it into, so this more manageable, so we can get that out into our communities. And then if you think about the average family that comes to the pantry, you know, they don't have a huge truck to carry this home. They have a few shopping bags. And so we do need these broken down into more manageable portions so they can get it home um, to, their, to, to their homes and to their families. And the need for volunteers, that isn't just for the holidays, right? I mean, that's year round. Thank you for saying that. Yes, for some reason, everybody seems to think that it's only during the holidays that we need that. No, hunger is a year-round problem, as you mentioned. It's a year-round issue, and we are always looking for uh, volunteers. So if people are thinking about volunteering now, uh, that's great. But go onto our website. You can also, you know, click the button that says volunteer, and there are um, slots, volunteer slots open throughout the year. You can plan ahead. Do it, you know, do mm-hmm. it to um, for your birthday. Uh, do it, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I bring my son, and when it's his birthday, and some of his friends, and they come and they volunteer because it's a, it's a reminder every Every year that they um, that, that, that everybody needs help and we also need uh, volunteers to help so well I remember many years ago when I was a journalist um, interviewing somebody at a soup kitchen and they were saying yeah you know at Thanksgiving we have so many people who want to volunteer and they want to you know stand there and ladle out the soup and help distribute the sandwiches you know it's like the big thing that families do for thanksgiving and they were like where are they the rest of the year that, that's when we need them you know not at thanksgiving we have more help than we know what to do with at thanksgiving but the rest of the year people forget that this is 24/7 day in and day out yeah, but I, I will say that our volunteers, we have some of the best volunteers, um, I, I, I think, on the planet. Um, a lot of our volunteers actually are returning volunteers and they remember, they remember, we're trying to do, make it fun, you know, you know, play music really loud or turn it into a bit <laughs> of a competition, you know, that kind of thing. And people have a good experience. And then we remind them, oh, hey, set your calendar for another six in six months time, come back again. And we do get a lot of corporations, um, you know, uh, companies that 
but also do um, you know team buildings um, uh, events and things like that. But um, but yeah, you know we 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 had to, we do have some of the best volunteers. But people I think do this. You know you either have a heart for it or you don't. And I think people who do come and they volunteer really um, are, are very loyal and are very committed to um, ending hunger and helping helping and joining the movement to end hunger. And 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 it's a wonderful thing and it's wonderful to see. Okay, the people who are listening, if they want to donate food, if they want to donate money to the Greater Chicago Food Depository, where do they go? Thank you. Uh, to the, uh, chicagosfoodbank.org, and then on that homepage, you can either donate, you can volunteer, you can advocate, you can you know, uh, find out lots of things about our programs, find food, uh, that kind of thing. So chicagosfoodbank.org is where I would direct people. chicagofoodbank.org. Um, yeah. Manny Lee, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners and for all the great work that you do. Um, hats off to you guys. Thank you for helping to raise awareness, Joan. And you know what? Uh, let's have a discussion again in six months when it's not the holidays. The need is still out there and everyone has forgotten. Okay. I love that you said that. Thank you. I will, I will hold you to that. Thank you so much, Joan. Thank you. Well, we are going to take a break. We're going to be back to news and politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am very pleased to be joined by our good friend, Professor William Muck, who is with North Central College in Naperville and a political science expert. Uh, sadly, I think, uh, William, I'm going to have to cancel this hour because there's just nothing to talk about. There is no <laughs> political science anywhere in the world right now. It's a quiet time, Joan. You know, with the holidays, <laughs> everything else shuts down and, and, and everybody plays nice. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, I, I, I know this is kind of maybe out of your area, but um, I sent Professor Muck uh, an email earlier today because one thing that has struck me more and more so is the difference in the coverage that we see between the war in Ukraine and the war in Gaza right now. Um, and I understand. I've talked to the deaf people from the Defamation League, and any time they've told me, any time there is anything in the world, uh, any incident, any occurrence that involves Jewish people, just sort of raising the Jewish profile that the Anti-Defamation League always sees an uptick in anti-Semitic actions, anti-Semitic vandalism, anti-Semitic speech, um, and that's kind of what we are seeing now. I know I sent you that Jennifer Rubin on Washington Post editorial where she said, OK, you know, everybody accused Israel of this, this and this. And then we all found out that Israel didn't do this, this and this. But I don't see anybody going back on the air and saying, oh, by the way, yeah, I told you this. Turned out I wasn't right. And I think she's I think she's right. And maybe this is just something the media is is always guilty of, but this particular conflict seems to have created such an emotional firestorm in this country, the likes of which I haven't seen in a very, very long time. Can you talk to me about 
the sources, the roots of this? Yeah. And I think, you know, drawing the comparison to Ukraine is really interesting because Ukraine and the war in Ukraine fits a simple narrative, especially for a U.S. audience. Uh, Russia is the bad guy. The United States is the good guy. They've engaged in aggressive war. Uh, and again, it's, it's a simple story that everybody is comfortable with. But when we start thinking about what's happening in, in Gaza right now, in the United States, there are, again, it's a much more complicated dynamic because you've got Palestinians, you've got Arabs, you've got Jews. You've got all these people in the United States who all tell slightly different stories. And I think the really hard thing about trying to cover what's happening in Gaza right now is which story do you tell and when do you start telling that story? Because all of the agents in that area um, have a compelling story, other than Hamas, right? I don't think Hamas has a good story. I don't, I don't want to make any defense of, of what Hamas is up to, because I think they've proven themselves to be an illegitimate actor. But but the Palestinian voice, they've got something to say. Uh, Jews in the area, they've got something to say. And so I think it's hard for our political system and therefore hard for our media to to tell all of these all these different stories. And so sometimes one story gets told, sometimes it's another story. But also really important is when... And we start that story, right? So I think that's what we're seeing in some of the awkwardness of the media coverage of what's actually happening. And speaking of the, of the media coverage, what is your take on that so far? Well, so I think part of what we're watching is that you're seeing a media that is not sure what the U.S. audience wants. Um, and I think and also that the, this, the conflict itself is just so, so complicated in terms of, you know, who's at right, who's wrong, who's committed war crimes. These are these are hard questions. And so the media like is stumbling through this a little bit, trying to figure out, you know, do we do we tell the story of October 7th, which is a horrible story, right? Do we focus in on that? Or do we talk about more long term, right? The idea that that events have been playing out in the Middle East for decades. Do we tell that story? Um, what sort of pressure points are being pushed? So, I mean, I think the media is trying, um, but I think it's a really hard story to tell. Um, and the other thing I would say is that the American public in general doesn't follow Middle Eastern politics very well, right? They don't know a lot about it. So it's, it's hard, hard because you're trying. It's incredibly yes. complicated. The players um, are difficult to know. They haven't always been in place for hundreds of years. Um, you know, I try, I think more than the average bear to try to keep up with this stuff. And when it comes to the Middle East, I'm lost. I got to tell you, I'm lost. It's as, it's all no. I can do to remember the geography of the land, let alone the politics. This is such an important point, right? And, and it's hard to, it's a, it's a, it's, there's a long history. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of conflicts that have played out in that area. And then for an American audience to come in and just sort of pick it up, it's difficult. Whereas like with Ukraine, it's easy, right? You can say Russia bad, United States and Ukraine good. Uh, when we're talking about the Middle East, it doesn't fit into those easy narratives. And then, and kind of what you were talking about in terms of, of war crimes and who do we hold accountable and all of that, that's also a really, really complicated subject, right? So I teach a class. Uh, on, on international war crimes, and we talk about those things, and they're, it's really messy. And so then we don't know much of the history of the Middle East, and then we got to layer on all of this complex fighting, and who do we hold accountable? So I think it's it's a bit much for the American audience to understand, and so I think that's part of why the media has struggled. Like, at what level do we pitch a story? How much history do we tell? And and so I think you're right to say that there hasn't always been comprehensive coverage because you know it's a hard story to tell to the Americans. Okay, I have what might be kind of a dumb question. 
um, international war crimes. I know that here yeah. in the United States, uh, you can find in books um, what the laws are for the nation, what the laws are for the states, what, if any, punishments co- connect with breaking those laws. Is there something like that for war crimes? Is there like yeah. the war crime statute book? Yes, absolutely. Right. And so we would start and there's a lot of places you can look for this, but the best place is thinking about the Geneva Conventions. So, you know, the Geneva Conventions lay out uh, the rules of war. So when you're fighting, what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to fight? And it can get really complicated. But I think the most important thing as we think about, you know, how war is supposed to take place is that you maintain a distinction between combatants and non-combatants. So soldiers, the military, they are legitimate targets, innocent people, non-combatants. Non, you know, civilians are not legitimate targets. So if we think about what Hamas did on October 7th, they violated that most fundamental rule of how you were supposed to fight. They went in and they intentionally targeted civilians. Right. So that's why I think if we think about how do we understand right and wrong in this conflict, what Hamas did on October 7th is so clearly a violation of that combatant, non-combatant distinction. They intentionally targeted civilians, right? So that's, I mean, I think that is the, we just start there and say they are wrong when it comes to that particular attack. And that's what's making this whole, we're going to get rid of Hamas once and for all plan that the Israelis have is because not only did they attack civilians on October 7th, but they are I don't know why this continues to shock people, because they are quite open about the fact that they hide their material and their various satellite offices in the heart of civilian areas underneath civilian buildings. I mean, this is this is something that they don't hide. This isn't like a secret that, you know, somebody just uncovered and. We knew when the Israeli Defense Forces entered into Gaza that there were going to end up being civilian casualties for just this reason. Is doing this, hiding your cache of materials and, and arms and, and having your um, headquarters um, under hospitals, under libraries, under shelters, would that be war crimes? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's it, what it's called is it's called using human shields. So what Hamas is doing is they are intentionally putting their compounds, you know, they're, they're putting their military supplies, their forces or whatnot in these civilian areas, knowing that that Israel is less likely to attack them because they are uh, civilian mm-hmm. populations, hospitals and whatnot. So, yes, the use of human shields is absolutely illegal by international law. So so what Hamas is doing there is also wrong now. But here's this is the sort of the twist of it all like Hamas knows all of this and they are intentionally making it difficult so they are sort of bending and violating the international rules of war to make it difficult for Israel so this is all part of their strategy right it's all part of their plan now, the, the part part is that when Israel goes after Hamas, they also have to maintain the distinction between combatants and non-combatants. So they have to try to preserve civilians. They can't intentionally target civilians. So they have to target and fight an entity which rejects the rules of war, but they have to continue to abide by those rules of war. And Hamas knows that, and they know it's going to make life difficult for Israel, and they know that it's going to lead to civilian casualties and blowback. So, so all of this that we we're watching play out is really that was really the plan of Hamas, and it's what it makes it what's so frustrating as you kind of watch all of this this play out in the sort of international theater. 
it seems to be widely accepted that if Hamas isn't either eliminated or weakened beyond viability, that over time they will regroup and there will be more attacks since in their basic charter it says that Israel has no right to exist. So whether or not you like Netanyahu, and it just so happens I don't, you can understand the survival instinct that these people have to be stopped once and for all. So we know they hide behind civilians. We know they pose a life and death death threat to the Israelis. And yet so much of the world seems to be focused on taking the Israelis to task. Oh, there should be a ceasefire. Okay, maybe a temporary ceasefire if they agreed to release hostages, but a, a, a long-term ceasefire? Why? To allow them to regroup? To allow them to acquire more guns and, and more bombs? I, I don't understand what is motivating. I mean, it's tragic. It's tragic to see civilians getting injured. But when you've got a group that surrounds themselves with civilians... It's inevitable, and yet it still seems to be Israel's fault, like somehow they've got to thread that needle. Yeah, you can take out Hamas, but you can't kill any civilians, even though that Hamas guy right there is hiding behind a civilian. Yeah, you got to figure that out, Israel. I don't I, it doesn't seem fair to me. I really hope that you can give me some insight into this. Sure, absolutely. Well, and I think that the word fair is really important here because what Hamas is doing is not fighting fair. They're intentionally using human shields. They're intentionally violating the rules of war. They're intentionally putting all this additional pressure on Israel where Israel has to follow the rules, but Hamas does not. And so then why and why Hamas does this is and this is really important. They are trying to flip the narrative. So on October 7th, it was Hamas who was painted as the bad guys. But as Israel goes after Hamas and in inevitably kill civilians, that allows Hamas to change the narrative and to shift global opinion. And that's sort of what you're seeing right now. And here's the other important thing to think about. So when Israel goes after Hamas... They have every right uh, by international law to go after Hamas, right? Is the right to defend themselves. But one of the other rules of war is that when you go after an entity, you have to respond in a proportionate way. And so some of the what you're seeing from the international community, what you're seeing from inside the United States is asking this question, is, is Israel's defense, is it proportionate to the nature of the attack? And so you think about the, you know, the numbers as those casualty numbers in, in Palestine and Gaza go up. Is it a is it a is it a proportional response to that original attack. And I think that's where some of the, the important conversation is happening, right? At what point uh, do the civilian casualties in the Gaza Strip to get to such a number where you say it's no longer proportional and they have to rethink about how they go after um, after Hamas? Uh, so I think that's part of the, the international pushback is this question of proportionality. Okay, that that makes sense to me. Thank you for that, Professor Mark. I appreciate that. Sure. One, um, one other thing to to point out, too, is that there's a distinction between Hamas and the Palestinians. Um, and so I think a lot of the international perspective is thinking about the rights of the Palestinians. But Hamas wants to conflate those two, right? So Hamas wants mm-hmm. to make everybody on one side. And that's what makes it really, really difficult for Israel. Um, we are going to be taking a break. I'm talking to Professor William Muck. We are talking about uh, political science and what is going on in the world. We will continue this discussion in just a couple of minutes. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
Uh, I am joined by political science professor William Muck. He's with North Central College in Naperville. And we are talking about all the different uh, political happenings. This is like a is this like the busiest time that you can remember in your professional career with not only the the subjects you teach and the background on that, but it just seems like. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm a government geek that political science is is a bigger part of people's lives now than maybe it was 10 years ago. Does it seem that way to you or are you like oh. me? You're so steeped in it. You can't really tell. Well, you know, but both the things, right? I feel like I'm in it all, but there's no question. It's more now. There's more big and important conversations. I think back, you know, to the the time when we could just have conversations about whether we should have universal health care, right? And how simple that time was versus now when we're we're talking about you know core threats to the democracy, war in Ukraine, you know, war in the Middle East, the Donald Trump, all of these things. No, I think there is there's so much out there, and in some ways, as a political scientist, it's fascinating to to be talking about all those things. But as a human being, being Joan, it's it's sort of scary. It worries me. <laughs> yeah. Well, with with good reason. Um, you know, when when I briefly, and I mean very briefly, uh studied World War One and the lead up to World War One, it sort of seemed like each of the different incidents that contributed to the start of World War One in and of itself wasn't something to bring the whole world to to war, but it was like a this random sort of domino effect. One thing happened, and another thing happened, and another thing happened, and it, it wasn't like in Ukraine where you had an aggressor who moves across your border and says, "I want to take this land." It wasn't so clean and so clear. It almost seemed like people inadvertently, if you will, ended up in World War One. And sometimes when I see all the different things happening now, I wonder, you know, decades from now, are people going to look back and see how we careened from one incident to the other and ended up in a place where nobody wanted to be? Joan, I think you are secretly a political scientist, because if you're thinking that <laughs> deeply about the causes of World War One, which is one of my favorite subjects of all time, I think you're you're right there. Uh, I t- actually I teach a class where we spend six weeks looking at the July crisis, which is that month before the beginning of World War One. And we we think about the diplomacy there. And I think you're spot on when we think about what started World War One. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't as if Germany was like, we're going to go to war or France or Russia. Uh, A lot of scholars talk about that we basically sort of, we were sleepwalking into war, that nobody really wanted it, but you sort of get trapped by the momentum of events and then suddenly you find yourself in war. Uh, And I I feel that very much now, uh, that as we think about all the events that are going on, whether we're talking about Middle East or or Ukraine or U.S.-China relations, there are a lot of things that are happening and there's the potential that you get swept up in the momentum of those things. And even though you didn't want to go to war, uh, it can happen. I think about that with Ukraine. I think about that, what's going on in the Middle East now. I think about a lot of that with with the United States and and China and that relationship that a lot of things are happening and we don't always appreciate the way where it's easy to slide almost accidentally into war. If you wouldn't mind, let's let's take a quick look back at World War One. Um, yeah. And 
give give us a real quick synopsis of some of the events that led to it. And then would there have been if one of those events had been disrupted in some way, would we have avoided the uh, the outcome? So it's a two part question. Uh, first, I want to sure. just recap the history and then know if it could have gone a different way. Sure. Well, uh, so most of our listeners will remember the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. If you know nothing about World War One, you're like, I've heard of that guy, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, so on June 14th, uh, 19, or June 20th, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who's the, he's basically the heir in waiting for the Austrian, Austro-Hungarian Empire, is assassinated in Bosnia. And again, the parallels today are really, really fascinating. He's assassinated by somebody who's working for the Black Hand, which is a terrorist organization coming out of Serbia, right? So you can think about nationalism and terrorism. And so obviously Austria is just livid about this, right? They're really, really angry. Uh, and so what happens is Austria is threatening to go to war uh, with Serbia over this. Well, Serbia is friends with Russia. So Serbia reaches out to Russia and says, hey, do you have our back? Uh, and Sir, uh, Russia says, of course. And then what happens is then Austria reach out to, reaches out to its friend Germany and says, hey, Germany, do you have our back? Uh, and Germany says, yes. And they, they give what's known as the blank check. So Germany says, yes, Austria, we have your back. Uh, and so that you start to see the pieces sliding in. And nobody's, nobody's really thinking about this being a world war. Everybody's thinking like, well, it's probably just going to be a war between Austria and Serbia. And then eventually France gets involved and they say, hey, we would love to go to war with Germany and get some of our territory back. So, you know, at each stage of this, nobody's really thinking, even Germany, who's oftentimes blamed for World War One, none of them are really thinking, well, this is going to end up in a world war. They all think, well, it's, it's going to be something else. And then Great Britain gets involved. And so... At, at multiple stages throughout the July crisis, this month before uh, World War One, there were opportunities to turn away, to say, let's not go down this path. Uh, but in, rational actors make the choice saying, well, let's do this, let's do that, without fully realizing that the cumulative effect of all these individual actions is going to culminate in a war. And so, you know, you get trapped by it, right? So eventually, Germany realizes, well, hey, we've got to go to war now, right? We're sort of trapped. There's nothing else we can do because Austria let us down this path. And now Russia is being threatening to us. You know, so all of these things happen. And I think if you asked all the individual actors at the beginning, would they want war? They would say no. But then through the the history as it plays out, they all get trapped by this momentum of the events. And so, you know, I, I often think it's a really interesting parallel today to say all of these micro decisions that we're making, uh, could the cumulative effect of them lead to war? And, and so, yes, I, it's such a really, really great example for understanding modern politics. Well, it seems to me that there are, are parallels. But, you know, we're looking at World War One with the advantage of 2020 hindsight. Oh, yes, that decision you can see uh, then resulted in this. And I think when you're in the midst of it, as I sort of feel we might be now, it's hard to say, oh, yeah, we got to watch out for that because that could lead to the other thing. Sometimes it's difficult to have that clarity in the moment. But I remember I, what was it? I can't remember the phrase Antony Blinken used. It basically that when this whole situation in the Middle East erupted, you know, they wanted to make sure that it stayed contained to the two actors, Israel and Hamas. They didn't want Hezbollah in there. They didn't want Iran uh, doing anything to get in there. They they really he had a different word. It was a must have been a political science word word about basically making sure this conflict didn't spread. 
And I was glad of it. I wasn't sure, especially in the beginning, if it would really turn out that way or if they would be able to hold that line. But so far, both in the situation with Russia and Ukraine and also in the Middle East, it seems like we have, I might be too much to say we've learned a lesson and we're trying to keep a lid on these things. But it seems like so far it has been maybe we have prevented ourselves from going down a path that leads to a bigger conflict or maybe we just haven't done it yet. I'm not really no, I'm I, not I, really sure, but it scares me. It, it does. And I, I think what we, we could talk about both examples that the conflict has been localized. And I think from the beginning, whether it was Ukraine or whether we're talking about the fight between Hamas and Israel, the, the, the U.S. and Biden in particular said we want them to stay local. And so here's one instance where I think Biden deserves quite a bit of credit, credit, especially Ukraine, because Ukraine could have spiraled very easily uh, to other countries. It could have spiraled to a conflict between Russia and NATO. And Biden has been careful and very deliberate. Sometimes, even though it gets him criticized to say, I'm only going to move incrementally because I think if I move too quickly, it could cause this to spread. So it's, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's, it's been a priority of the Biden administration in Ukraine, but I think now so in the Middle East to say, let's prevent this from spreading. Let's keep it localized uh, because the, the implications of a wider war are, are not good for anybody, including the United States. So I think there's a lot of intentionality to that. And then one more point that I'll shut up, Joan. But the other thing is, I think. <laughs> I think good leadership really matters. So if we go back to the World War One analogy, uh, there wasn't always good leadership. So Kaiser Wilhelm, the leader of Germany, there is often people often make historical comparisons to Donald Trump. He was impulsive. He was angry. He had a temper. He didn't focus on the details. And so when you have bad leadership, it's easier to make mistakes. And I think so Biden deserves quite a bit of credit to say he's he's done a good job of preventing things from spiraling in a really dangerous direction. I think he's done a really good job on a lot of fronts, but this is certainly one of them. Professor William Muck and I are going to sit tight while we take a break for news, and then we're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I'm joined by Professor William Muck, who is uh, chair of the Department of Political Science and coordinator for uh, North Central College in Naperville's Global Studies and Model United Nations programs. Uh, tell me, uh, William, in the Model United Nations programs, do you teach everybody how to yell at everybody else and how not to listen and how to take votes that means that end up meaning nothing happens? Well, no. Well, it, that, sometimes that happens. But, <laughs> you know, the whole point of, of teaching the United Nations is to learn diplomacy uh, and, and also to learn how difficult it is to engage in diplomacy. Uh, you know, the United Nations, I think, does a lot of really good work. But the way that it is structured uh, makes it difficult to be always effective. Right. So and I think so part of when you teach a class like that, it's to expose the students the challenge of doing anything at the international level and the frustration side of all that but well all that has to, all that happens you still have to be diplomatic you still have to be nice and you have to use diplomatic language so that's part of what we're we're trying to teach the students is to sort of mimic the real world and see how difficult it is really to to solve problems and to to pass meaningful legislation and sometimes yes to see laws passed that are that are not particularly good right i mean it, it, the united nations is also open to mistakes as well interesting that you say 
uh, compromise and the difficulty of negotiation. I um, usually keep one monitor on CNN while I'm on the air, just in case there's some major breaking news. And I keep seeing these banners on negotiations to free more hostages or all the hostages close. They're close. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what does that mean? Like, okay, well, we're going to do it, but we can't decide if we should do it Wednesday or if we should do it Thursday. You know, there's arguments on both sides. I mean, clearly there must be a great degree of progress for anybody in a position of knowing to say, oh my gosh, this, this is, uh, this is imminent. And yet it's clearly not, not done. Uh, you've probably been privy to these kinds of negotiations. What is somebody like me supposed to take from that? Oh, it's almost happened. Yeah, but it hasn't happened. So that means maybe it might not happen. But, you know, we don't really know what's at stake here. It's maddening to be on the outside and to get little (laughs) snippets of news, but not really know what's going on, right? This is where you want to be on the fly on the wall and to actually hear some of the conversations that are taking place so you can know, you know, what's, who's asking for what and all of that. We don't know that. Now, the one sort of funny thing is like Biden keeps slipping, right? He's, he's not supposed to release things, but he keeps saying things like, Hey, I'm feeling really good about that. And I'm sure his team is thinking like, Joe, you know, shush, don't, don't say anything until we're more further down the road because you're absolutely right. It's slow. It's monotonous. Um, I think back to the, you know, Jimmy Carter and the Iran hostage, all, all that, you know, day after day, you know, with no progress. And I think I think this is likely to play out more quickly. Uh, but it's it's a really difficult process to play out just because you can't see what's really happening. You know, what is Israel? What are the United States asking for? What is Hamas doing? Like, what do they want in return? It's you know, it's 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 sort of like making sausage. It's not really good to watch it as it's taking place. Right. But eventually you get more news on the outside. So in a negotiation like this, I mean, I was kind of being silly about whether, you know, oh, let's debate whether it's going to take place Wednesday or Thursday. But what do you think? What do you think is being talked about? Like, will there be a ceasefire? How long will the ceasefire go on? How many hostages do we get for, you know, every minute of the ceasefire? I mean, is it is it that detailed? I would think so. Yes. And and I think what I would love to know is what is Hamas asking for? Right. I, because if we go back to our initial conversation, you know, Hamas is trying to create a narrative. They're trying to tell a story that is favorable to them. So right now, what they want to do or I'm, I'm guessing what they want to do is they want to portray themselves as the good guys. Right. So they're the ones releasing the hostages, even though it's completely illegal to take hostages. Right. I mean, so that's we're sort of stepping past that point. But they want to portray themselves as good. So they want to slowly release these hostages. So it feels like, again, they're the ones that are compromising. So I would be curious, what are they asking for? I think here's an issue where the United States and Israel probably don't see eye to eye on this process. Uh, Biden has suggested that his number one priority is getting the hostages out. And Israel has said that, but I think their real priority is going after Hamas, right? And so you've got slightly different interests and motivations here. So you've got, you know, at least two or three actors, all with slightly slightly different requests. And again, that's why it takes so long. And my guess is behind the scenes, they felt like they made a lot of progress. And then in those final stages, something comes up and then they've got to spend a disproportionate amount of time on what seems like a really small detail to get finally over the hump. So that's, you know, it's just, it's sort of maddening to, to, to watch and to be a part of, and then not know what's really happening. Have you ever been a part of, um, tense negotiations? 
I haven't. No, in academics, I'm I'm removed from all that stuff, Joan, because I couldn't handle it. It'd be too stressful. <laughs> I got to be in the ivory tower where I could read about this years afterwards. But I will say, like, you know, I oftentimes read about this stuff. So part of the, the scholarship I do is going back and looking at diplomacy. And, you know, we mentioned World War One. What I love to do is look at the, you know, the telegram sent back and forth. Or another case study I do is the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we, you know, I love to go through and read, you know, what were Kennedy and Khrushchev saying to each other? What were what was going on inside the administration? Who was stressed out over what? You know, so that's how, that's how I like to understand those events and see the inside uh, process. And a lot of times what, what's revealed is the stress, the anxiety, um, sometimes good decision making, but sometimes bad decision making. Um, so, you know, that's that's all of what's happening here is, you know, you've got different actors all trying to pursue their strategic ends, but oftentimes coming at it very, very differently. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, the then Soviet Union wanted to install missiles, ballistic missiles in Cuba, missiles that were capable of launching a nuclear attack on the United States. And we drew the line and said, no, and no, we're not going to we're not going to live this way. And that was another time. I mean, I was pretty young, but I remember the feeling filtering down to me as a kid that people were very worried that this was here we go. It's going to be another world war. Was there something someone did that you can point to that averted that crisis? Why did Khrushchev end up backing down? This is such a God, Joe. We're doing such fun stuff today. Cuban Missile Crisis, <laughs> World War One. This is the kind of stuff I love to talk about. Here's what I would say: the big lesson that I think people oftentimes miss about the Cuban Missile Crisis, what allowed that to be resolved peacefully, was negotiation. So the the common narrative is that, as as you said, Kennedy got tough with Khrushchev. But what most people don't know is that what really sealed the deal was the United States agreed to remove missiles from Turkey secretly. So we said to the Soviet Union, hey, in six months, we're going to remove these same missiles that you have in Cuba. We'll remove ours from Turkey and everybody's going to feel better. And when now Kennedy said, you can't tell anybody because it'll look bad for me domestically. Uh, And Khrushchev said, "Okay, Right. So I think the reason that we didn't have nuclear war in the Cuban Missile Uh Crisis is because Kennedy and Khrushchev were able to sit down and have a conversation and negotiate, right? So it's, it's, I think about that with the United States and China right now, like the best thing you could oftentimes do to de-escalate is have some conversation, find common ground, right? And so I think we avoided nuclear war because these two leaders were able to say, hey, let's find a common solution. Now, we can't always tell everybody because domestic politics is really, really difficult to overcome. But that, I think, is the is the one reason that we were able to avoid nuclear war was was compromise. But, you know, it's, it's a very different story than we often read about with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So you think it's possible that in Joe Biden's recent talks with Chinese Premier Xi, that there were some quid pro quos? I think so. Now, I think it's at a really low level, right? So there, But I think both of them are saying things have gotten awfully heated over the last six months to a year. Let's find a way to de-escalate. Let's find at least a couple things that we can agree on. And one of the things that Joe Biden talked about is that we don't want to make a silly mistake. You know, we don't want to misinterpret some action on your part. So one of the things they agreed to was that they were going to have the militaries talking to each other. I think this is such an important thing because it's so easy uh, to have some mistake where if the militaries aren't communicating with each other, what's going on here? What did you do there? Why did you do that? Misinterpret that and suddenly it spirals into something bigger. So I applaud both President Xi and Joe Biden for saying, hey, let's 
Let's sit down. Let's look to each other face to face and let's talk about putting, you know, some ground floor in there so we can maybe build up in the future. So it didn't get a ton of news, but I think it was a really important meeting between the two of them to say, let's create a framework for maybe in the future we can have some more of these conversations. So I guess I just already assumed that um, we have um, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense. I assumed that he already had the private cell phone number of the person in China and the person in Russia who is his equivalent. And that 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 was I just assumed that that would be, you know, um, a way that we had off. Like what you were just talking about, these misunderstandings that can really lead to horrific situations. And with China, we didn't have that before. Lloyd Austin didn't have anybody's phone number. For a lot of years, we did. But then in 2022, Nancy Pelosi, you probably remember, remember Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. Yes. Uh, and when she did that, that upset the Chinese military, Chinese government, the military. And so they cut off conversations. Um, and so since that visit, there have been no direct communications between the U.S. and Chinese military. Uh, and so that's why, again, it, this seems like a basic you know, thing you should have, but it wasn't existing. And there have been a number of incidents in the South China Sea. Not long ago, there was a Chinese jet that got within 10 feet of a U.S. plane, uh, right? And so let's find a way to start communicating, you know, baby steps here uh, so that you can avoid some miscalculation or misinterpretation of events. So again, it, we're really, it's, it's, it's baby steps, but I think it was an important first step uh, to maybe create more dialogue between these two really, really powerful actors. You know, I know there was talk um, that some in government were trying to pressure Nancy Pelosi into not going to Taiwan, but the way... I understood it. And please correct me if I'm wrong. Taiwan is part of an Asian group that the United States is a part of. And she went not because she wanted to thumb her nose at China and say, I'm just reminding you that we like Taiwan. She was visiting all of the different countries in this uh, organization. And to skip Taiwan uh, she later said would have sent the wrong message because there it was her job to visit all these folks. Taiwan's a member of the club. So Taiwan needed to be on the list. And that's all there was to it. Do I have that even remotely right? No, that's right. That's how she portrayed it. Now, and I think that's absolutely right. But I also think the second thing you mentioned was also a part of that. She's been visiting Taiwan for years. And I think she probably as a, as a member of government wanted to also send some sign of support. Right. So I think she was doing both things. I, you know, I think she really believes in, in uh, you know, the autonomy of Taiwan. And so I think she saw both things occurring, but it was it was interpreted very differently from China. They saw this as provocative, that the United States is messing around in its back yard and, and maybe a little bit that is the right interpretation but again so these are these little incidents that become a big deal uh joe biden this last week called uh president xi a dictator and it's the second <laughs> time he did that the first time he did it you know china, china i'm sorry china got so upset right so these are all the little things that make diplomacy so difficult right you you probably saw the video of, of blinkton when when uh, joe Saturday biden said Night the word Live. dictator yeah. Oh, it was it was fantastic, right? Because Joe Biden is just that kind of guy. He says things, but Anthony Blink Anthony Blinkman saying like, "I spent hours, you know, making all of this progress and gone," <laughs> you know. Uh huh. Yeah. When um, 
when uh, President Biden was asked by a reporter, you know, you said they were a dictatorship before. Do you know, do you still stand behind that? And he was like, well, yeah, they are. And Antony Blinken just <laughs> scrunches his eyes and his eyebrow and his head droops ever so slightly. And you could just really feel for the guy. Anyway, oh, we're definitely. past time to take a break. So um, hold that thought. Um, I'll be back with Professor William Muck right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Professor William Muck, who is the chair of the political science department at North Central College in Naperville. And we have been talking about China most recently, but we were also talking about the situation with Israel and Hamas. And, uh, William, I was looking at our text line during the break, and Andy from Evanston texted in a possible solution rather than going in guns blazing. What would happen if the United Nations or Israel or even the United States were to offer bounties, like to offer to pay Palestinians to turn over Hamas fighters? Would a situation like that work? You know, it would be difficult to do because Hamas has been so part of the Palestinian population, right? So it, because it's, there's also power dynamics, right? Hamas is the, is the group that has the weapons. They've got the control. They've got the power. So the average Palestinian doesn't have a whole lot they can do to go after Hamas. So there's that sort of power discrepancy. And, you know, from, there's not a lot of polling, but it does seem like a lot of the Palestinians aren't particularly happy with Hamas, right? So that's, that's well, why that's I was what thinking. I was going to ask you too, because I've read reports that say, oh, the Palestinians hate Hamas. And then I've read other people saying, you know what? That's not true because they wouldn't hide them. They wouldn't support them. They wouldn't vote them into office if they weren't supportive of Hamas. And I, I don't I don't know, maybe depending upon which population you're looking at, maybe both are true. Well, that, that's exactly right. It's entirely possible that there are some who are sympathetic and there are others who are not. Um, and then, you know, as this, again, what Hamas wants is as the Israel camp, uh, Israel's attack on Hamas plays out, they're hoping to turn supporters into sympathizers, sympathizers into supporters, right? As, you know, to, to make more Palestinians and, and actually others in the region to come to their cause. So that's why it's so difficult. The job that Israel's trying to do is so difficult and Hamas is intending to make it difficult at every turn. I mean, it's just, it's a really a no-win situation for Israel because no matter what they do, they're going to be portrayed as the bad guy. It's an incredibly difficult to fight a terrorist organization. Sometimes I think it's uh, also unfair because I, I read a lot of articles, I read a lot of comments, and everybody seems to think that uh, Joe Biden has the power to end this conflict and I know the United States is powerful and has a lot of influence, but sometimes that seems unfair to me. Like, well, you know, supposedly the United States gave Zelensky at least a few days heads up when when we knew that Russia was going to invade. So why didn't Joe Biden pick up the phone to Vladimir Putin and say, you know, we'll take those missiles out of Turkey again, you know, or whatever it takes? Um, does it seem to you that... I know that he's doing a lot and he's doing a lot behind the scenes, but sometimes I think people expect Joe Biden to be able to tell other countries what to do and how to live their lives. I don't know. That's realistic. Yeah. 
No, I think it's it's not, not it's not at all realistic, right? And this is something we've seen throughout. I mean, we could go all the way to post World War II U.S. foreign policy. We always assume that the United States, because we're so powerful, can shape the world and shape the activities of states. And sometimes we can, but not always. Uh, these other actors also have their own interests, and they don't always want to listen to the United States. So you know, you can put your thumb on the scale and you can try to influence, but there's a lot of the world that just plays out. No matter, it just plays out the way that it's going to, and the United States can't always control those world events. It's frustrating, but I think presidents historically have been criticized for not being able to control world events when it's it's not reasonable to expect the United States to, to be able to do that. What do you think would be going on right now if Donald Trump were president? Well, I think so. if we take the two conflicts we've been talking about, Gaza and Ukraine, I think if we start with Ukraine, I think the United States probably he would have done just about everything he could to cut funding um, and it would have played right into the hands of Vladimir Putin. So I think that would have been really, really dangerous. Um, I don't know what Trump would have done uh, in regards to Israel because it's so hard to know. He doesn't have a coherent foreign policy. So it's entirely possible that he would have backed Hamas. I'm sorry. Back to Israel in their battle with Hamas. But I can't say for that for sure, because he just is so erratic in terms of what his views are and they can change. He liked Netanyahu for a while. And then and then when Netanyahu started talking to Biden, apparently that was a betrayal. Yeah, right. And and he, you know, I think he likes to talk tough on a lot of things. So I think he may have, you know, talked tough about, uh, you know, hard lying on Hamas, but it's hard to know for sure. I think certainly for Ukraine, there would have been a, a number of efforts to try to cut U.S. support there and do everything he can to, to limit that. Uh, and that, I think, would have been very, very dangerous. And he's still saying the same things. I mean, he has said regarding NATO, if he gets elected again, that not only is he going to pull us out of NATO, but he's as much as said he's going to do everything in his pos- in his power to to destroy NATO. I mean, I think we um, I don't understand how there is such popularity for this guy. I know he has a hardcore cult following. I get that. You know, they are they know. I mean. Jim Jones told everybody to drink the Kool-Aid and they drank the Kool-Aid. And I think that there's a there's a contingent of Trump supporters like that. But I can't believe that's a majority of the country. I can't believe that's more than 20, at most 30 percent. And the rest of the people who at least give lip service to Trump seem to me to be really un-American. It's such a strange position. His views on NATO have never made sense to me because, you know, Democrat and Republican, everybody really thinks that NATO has been a success. It's a wonderful alliance that the United States created. Um, it basically reflects the interests of the United States. Um, it's a wonderful connection with some of the European allies. I mean, it has proven to be a really durable and successful alliance for many decades. Uh, and Republicans felt that way for years and Democrats have for years. So it's it's bizarre that Trump can decide that he does doesn't like NATO, and then he can pull a big chunk of the Republican Party with me or with him. It, it again, it has a, it has a cult dynamic to it that is separate from the real interests of the United States. Um, yeah, it's it's a bizarre thing, and I spent a lot of time, Joan, thinking like how how can how can people get on board with this because it's just not sound foreign policy again on a whole host of issues. Amazing, amazingly so. Um, I think we should create a new segment. Uh, Joan and William talk about history. 
I love it. I love it, Joan. It's my face. But, you know, politics and history and and drawing comparisons to what's going on in the world today. It's it's my happy place. Yeah, it is. It is my happy place, too, because I think, too, it's so important to learn the lessons of history and not repeat them. But if we don't learn what happened and why it happened and when it happened and how it happened, then we're we're going to stumble into those same mistakes. I think it's so important. So we're going to from going forward, every time you're on, we are going to have a history segment, um, Cuban Missile Crisis, World War One, what you know, whatever is was going on at any any given time. OK, this sounds fantastic, Joan. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Professor William Muck, North Central College in Naperville, also co-host of the podcast Politics Lab. We are going to uh, take a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. We're joined now by Cameron Stevenson. Excuse me. He's the founding editor and chief political correspondent for the Copper Courier, which is the Courier News outlet in Arizona. Cameron, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Joe. It's always good to be here. Always good to have you here. You know, uh, just let's see. Today's Thursday. Was it just this week? Excuse me, Cameron. Time is fluid for me, so I have to try to figure out when it is I read something. I I think it was this week. As I've said a million times before, I try to avoid, for the most part, the op-ed pages uh, because I just don't go there. But uh, an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal by Karl Rove caught my eye because he um, he wrote, interestingly, and I think it was just this week, it was certainly after the November 7th elections, he said, you know, abortion really isn't the issue people say it is. It's really not motivating people. Uh, people, you know, don't really care about it the way the news media would like you to believe that you do. And I thought to myself, Mr. Rove, I think that's wishful thinking. And... Um, <laughs> I was reading your article about what is going on with the Arizona Supreme Court and the and the effort to get one of the justices to recuse because of all the outrageous things that they've said. Please tell my listeners that story. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and you know, that that Carl Rove op-ed that just goes to show people who write op-eds are, are usually just trying to get get clicks and get attention because anyone who's paid attention to elections ever since Roe was overturned has seen how passionate uh, voters are about protecting reproductive care rights. Um, and they're equally you know, passionate about that here in Arizona. Um, we're currently going through a, a situation where we are both working towards a constitutional amendment to protect abortion rights. Uh, and uh, anti-abortion activists are trying to reinstate a an 1800s-era uh, abortion ban, a total ban. Um, right now, it's it's on its way to the Supreme Court. It's going to be heard next month. Uh, they're going to decide whether to institute this ban or not. Uh, and one of the justices has an extensive history and background on the public record about his stance on abortion. And, it, and not only that, but uh, about his stance on one of the plaintiffs in the case, Planned Parenthood. So is this justice going to do the right thing and recuse? And if this justice does not, is there any mechanism to force him to? Yeah. So so what's really interesting about this case is that, you know, so what happened was he used to be the 
the county attorney for Maricopa County, which is the largest county in Arizona. And while he was in this position, he constantly was fighting for stricter abortion laws to, to restrict access to abortion. Uh, on his social media profiles, he would call, he referred to Planned Parenthood as uh, as an organization that has committed genocide. Um, in, in his legal arguments uh, before the United States Supreme Court, he considered uh, abortion as a grisly p- procedure. And so he's, you know, for years he's characterized abortion, uh, mischaracterized abortion as, uh, you know, a terrible procedure and, and not just a, a medical necessity and, and the right of, of people to have. Um, and so when when these uh, old, you know, statements of his first resurfaced, uh, Planned Parenthood put in a, a motion to ask that he recuse himself. And he said, no, you know, everyone has, or his, you know, his spokesperson said, everyone has opinions, you know, I'm not going to let this. Uh, you know, dictate how I how, how I rule in, in a case. Uh, but Planned Parenthood specifically said that because this justice, Bill Montgomery, had accused them of genocide, that that made it a non-starter that he couldn't you know provide unbiased ruling in this case. And so they you know they sent in a formal motion requesting that he recuse himself. Uh, however, there is nothing in Arizona law that requires recusal or even requires the justices on the state Supreme Court to address a recusal request. It's completely up to the person who – to the justice who has been asked to recuse to decide whether or not they want to. Uh, in this case, I would be very surprised if he recused. Uh, I would even – say that this is part of the reason why he wanted to be on the state Supreme Court is so that he could have the opportunity to rule in cases like this. Um, is your Supreme Court in Arizona appointed or elected? It is appointed. And uh, it actually it was recently expanded uh, by our former Republican governor, Doug Ducey. Um, he expanded the court and then packed it with with his own appointees. And, and he himself is, is was very much an anti-abortion elected official. And so uh, it's pretty well stacked against this case. Isn't there uh, coming up, though, in uh, 2024, isn't there going to be an abortion measure on the ballot in Arizona? Yes, yes. No, that is the I I don't know if I'd call it a silver lining. um, But, you know, the the same people who are plaintiffs in this case, along with several other, other abortion rights groups in Arizona, uh, you know, they have been fighting abortion bans here. We, we, we had, you know, two or three on the books in different capacities. And they've been fighting it left and right in the courts ever since Roe was overturned. Uh, but they've also been working on uh, language for a constitutional amendment to protect abortion rights in Arizona. And it's something they announced earlier this year uh, after they had gone extensively back and forth with, you know, different lawyers and, and um, legislative attorneys to make sure the language was correct. Um, and it's going to take them a lot of work. It's a, it's a ballot proposition, so it's something all voters will be asked to vote on. But before it gets to our ballots, they have to gather 500 – well, their, their goal is to gather 500,000 signatures in support of this measure. So right now they're working on that. Um, and if it makes it on the ballot and then passes, then no, then these previous bans will be moot because um, – because it'll be in our constitution that abortion is a protected right.
Oh, wait a minute. I think you're getting ahead of yourself, Cameron, because Ohio did that. <laughs> might be. And you might not have heard what the Republicans in Ohio are saying. They're saying, well, yes, so it's, a, it's, it's part of the Constitution now. But that doesn't mean that any of these bans and restrictions that we've passed have to be overturned. No, they're already law. Don't you understand how that works, Cameron? <laughs> you know, I would I would argue that maybe the lawmakers in Ohio need a refresher course on how law works. Um, <laughs> uh, as I, I hope, you know, what will be determined in Ohio is what I would be confident will happen here is that the Constitution is the basis for the laws. You know, the laws are used to interpret how the Constitution works, not the other way around. Um, and now the, and they also added, you know, they were very intuitive and, and very aware of what was happening in other states when they wrote the language for this uh, proposal. And so it does specifically do away with any previous abortion ban that was written either before or after the state constitution was put in place. And that's not to say that the Republicans in our legislature aren't going to fight tooth and nail against it, but... um, Well, you know, we've got Robin Vos in Wisconsin who said that... um, um, you know, maybe he would just impeach Janet Protasiewicz, the, the new newly elected liberal member of the Supreme Court, because, you know, they got gerrymandering coming up. And, whoa, if we don't if we don't have our gerrymandering, there goes all of our political power in the state of Wisconsin. I know we'll impeach her and then we won't we won't we but we won't go through with the whole process will make her leave the court, but then we won't continue. So the governor doesn't get to replace her. Cameron, Cameron, don't you understand that there's always, it's like an onion, Cameron. There are layers <laughs> and layers to be pulled back. And it's, it's, you know, it's so frustrating to see that the, you know, the premise of these arguments is based on an acknowledgement that what they're trying to do isn't popular with the majority of people. Yes. You know, that just that justice in Wisconsin was elected by a majority of voters. They want her to be ruling on these cases. She, I imagine, you know, campaigned on a promise that she would, you know, she would fight gerrymandering and, and, and these sort of things. And, and so for them to, you know, to, for us to peel deeper into this onion and, and see the basis of their arguments, it's, I mean, I, I think seeing how elections have been going ever since Roe was overturned and, and you know, essentially since uh, 2018, you know, it's, it's becoming more and more clear that people are realizing that these Republican lawmakers don't have the interests of the majority at heart. I'm shocked to hear you say that. I'm absolutely shocked to hear you say that. And that's, you know, I understand that it's a last gasp. They get that they don't have the number of supporters to win elections freely and fairly. They seem completely uh, uninterested in changing their party platforms to bring in those voters who might free and fairly elect them to office. It's like they're becoming more and more radical and realizing that they've got to come up with all these different ways to skew the playing field so that they can win even with their tiny little minority, because God forbid they should change the way they look at the world. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if, if um, you want to get into this at all, but that does make me think of, you know, there, there's along with lawmakers, there are a bunch of fringe groups like the Moms for Liberty who are pushing for these fringe beliefs and policies. At how the are, how level. are they doing in Arizona? Because I know that in, in some states on um, November 7th, uh, they lost a lot of the school board seats they were trying to get. 
Yeah, uh, you know, they're not doing so hot here. They're, they're trying to set up shop. Um, they've, you know, they've said that they're making Arizona a focus, and our Republican state superintendent has, you know, gone to their meetings and supported them. But so far, I, you know, I, I look through the Monster Liberty website where they have, you know, their endorsed candidates or candidates who signed their pledge on there. And there's only one person who has signed their pledge who has made it into office. And that was back in, in January. Uh, in, in fact, we're actually seeing a very different tide here that even though there are, you know, members of the Moms of Liberty and they do go to the school board meetings and they're very loud, um, they're not necessarily going to the school board that they live in to, to complain. Um, you know, a lot of them aren't even moms. They're, they're, just, they're just people who, who want to make some noise. Um, and, you know, who's taking notice here is actually uh, Gen Z. We, we've been seeing a large, well, not a large, but a growing number of Gen Z candidates running for school board. We're even seeing high school seniors who are running to be school board members of the district where they attend. I, I've been reading more about that. And I think on November 7th, um, there were a couple of there was a 19 year old elected to his uh, town city council. Um, you know, Gen Z. Well, you know what, Cameron? I know they are certainly tired of waiting for my generation to fix things. Um, and, and well, they should be because we seem to be making things worse, not better. I'm not speaking well, for your I, generation, Cameron, just mine, the old white people <laughs> of the world. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll put some of the blame on the generation, but none of it on you. Well, thank um, you. You're very <laughs> of course. Um, but, yeah, it, it is, it's fascinating to see, you know, and I, I kind of feel for these kids uh, because when I was a senior in high school, I don't think I even knew what a school board was. And, <laughs> but because, you know, they're hearing these, these parents or they're embarrassed by their parents, going to these school board meetings and complaining about, you know, which bathroom students can use or, or trying to ban books. And these kids, you know, they're living in a, this unpoliticized part of their life where they're just trying to learn and make friends and enjoy school. And, and now they're feeling that they can't even do that. Uh, and so they're, they're trying to fix it. They're trying to shut these, uh, you know, these fringe candidates out. And so far, they're winning. Um, you know, we we have we actually our reporter Reagan Priest, who wrote a story about the Gen Z candidates in Arizona, um, or the Gen, Gen Z school board members. Uh, when she wrote it, she had found three, you know, under twenty six school board members. Um, wow. But then a few more reached out to us after we after the story was published and said, "Hey, uh, there's actually a couple more of us. You know, you missed wow. you know you missed us. You know, out here in, in Apache Junction and out here in, in Littleton." Um, and so it's, it's really amazing to see that uh, they're just, you know, they, you know, they're not connected. They're not part of some organization. They're they're just tired of being ignored, not having their um, not being represented. Yeah. Um, and it must be awful to be growing up now in a world where it seems like month by month, year by year, you lose rights that you you've grown up thinking that we're a part of the fabric of your life and suddenly a court takes away this right and, you know, local elections want to take away, you know, your ability to walk into a library and get the books that you want. It's it's uh, it's a it must be a terrible, terrible way to be growing to be growing up right now. And I want to talk to you more about Gen Z. We do need to take a quick break. Uh, we're talking about the uh, Copper Courier, which is the Courier News 
um, publication in Arizona. Cameron Stevenson is the founding editor and chief political correspondent. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. I'm joined by Cameron Stevenson, who's the founding editor and chief political correspondent for Arizona's uh, news organization, uh, Courier, and their publication, there, which you can find it online, is the Copper Courier. Look for coppercourier.com. We were just talking about an article that one of Cameron's reporters, uh, Reagan Priest, had written about young people, Gen Z, running for and being elected to school boards. And I think I read something, Cameron, and I this is a little bit tongue in cheek, but I really do think that there was some uh, truth to this, that we're in a way a little bit lucky because generally when the Moms for Liberty organization comes in and tries to take over school board meetings or tries to run candidates for election, they are so over the top. They are so extra that it makes it easier to oppose them. God forbid they should ever figure out how to try to be reasonable. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I very much, uh, you know, I, I see them as the 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 next stage in the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boebert of the world. Yeah, uh, they're they're loud. They have opinions, but they don't know what to do with. Them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, thankfully, uh, I think, especially you know, when it comes to these local elections like school boards, uh, voters see through that. People see the inauthenticity. Um, you know, people who are concerned about electing people to these school boards, they actually value public education and they want to make sure that the students in their area succeed. Even if, even if you know, their kids are up old and grown or they, they don't have any children, they're, you know, they're voting because they're investing in the future of our communities. And when you hear these bombastic speeches about, you know, hypothetical situations that couldn't possibly have happened in the real world and people are getting upset and they're making a scene and they're, you know, posturing for, you know, posting on posting videos of themselves online. People see through that. Uh, Whereas, you know, the inverse is, you know, they see uh, a 17 year old kid who's talking about how he, you know, just finished his calculus class and he's nervous about his test, but he also wants to make sure that calculus is still available in in all the schools in his district. So his, so his friends can take that along with art um, you know, and, and people people respond to that. You know, it's uh, it's authentic mm-hmm. and and it's respected. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing that I want to touch on um, before we get to the end of our time is I wanted to talk to you about what is going on in Arizona with uh, with the fake electors. I mean, you know, I mean, we saw. Uh, slates of fake electors created, and these uh, fake electors were supposed to be substituted for the real electors that actually got voted in, and that's how the election was going to be taken from Joe Biden and handed to Donald Trump. And I believe there's actually at least, what, an investigation going on now in Arizona? Yes. Yes, there is. So, in, so you know, it has happened in, I believe you mentioned, in several states throughout the country where these fake electors were selected. Uh, there have already been charges announced in against fake electors in Georgia and Michigan. Um, now, some people are, are kind of wondering what's taking our attorney general so long. She's a Democrat. She's long said that she will investigate them, and she has been for several months. 
the difference is that she wasn't able to start investigating until she was elected uh, in January, you know, until she assumed office in January, whereas in Michigan and in uh, Georgia, they were able to start the investigations much earlier. So while it's still going on here, it's, it's very robust. It's, it's sprawling. And our Attorney General, Chris Mays, um, you know, she's she's very much on top of, of holding these these fake electors accountable. Uh, which is going to be, uh, you know, a very unique task here because, you know, one of them was the former chair of the Arizona Republican Party, and a few of them are elected officials. So she's got her work cut out for, is, for her is basically what you're saying here. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and she really kind of had to start from scratch. Her predecessor, uh, Mark Burnovich, who was our attorney general before, he was uh, – he was running for U.S. Senate uh, in 2022. Uh, he lost the primary and, and you know, didn't you know, do anything after that. But uh, um, public records requests into his calendar have shown that he basically abandoned his post as the attorney general as soon as he started his campaign. Yeah. And so, he, you know, in, in the unlikely event that he even would have investigated this at all, uh, that would have stopped, you know, in early 2022. And so, you know, she came into an office that had you know, little going on. Uh, had several things that needed to happen and uh, and has been working on this. Um, you know, she's been very tight-lipped about it, but she's been working on it very diligently. Well, that's good to hear. be interesting to see what she comes up with. Before I let you go, Cameron, I have to ask you, I have friends who've lived for a long time in Arizona, and it seems that each summer gets progressively hotter and the high temperatures last for a longer period of time. When you have weeks at a time where it's over 110, how do you cope with that? What do you do? Oh, well, let me tell you, I definitely uh, yearn for uh, my childhood when it wasn't like that. Um, but, yeah, the reality is, you know, due to climate change and, and a few other factors, you know, we have weeks on end of 110 plus days. And, you know, I'm, I, you know, I think a lot of people, what we do is uh, a kind of a form of hibernation uh, where we, you know, we stay inside our, our office or our workplace uh, while the sun is out, uh, you know, and then once the sun goes down is when we do our grocery shopping or get our errands done. Um, it's, it is, it's very strange. Um, you know, I've, I have friends and coworkers who live back East and they're dealing with snow and, and we just had some rain today in the sixties which uh, is kind of nice, but uh, those summers, they, they can be extremely brutal, especially if you don't have the luxury to, to hide out anywhere cool. And it, just seems, it just seems utterly inhuman. Um, I mean, I've heard that it can get so hot that airplanes can't land because the runways have started to melt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, airlines or airplanes have to kind of circle around for a little while. Uh, the the pavement gets so hot that if you have your skin on it, it you can get second degree burn. Um, we've you know, and this is this is really really sad. And I've I've been covering it for several years, but every year we have more and more heat related deaths, uh, both from people who don't have stable housing and so they're outdoors, or from people who couldn't afford to pay their electric bill and oh. so their electricity was shut off. Now there has been you know stopgaps put in place since those deaths began occurring to require 
uh, utilities to keep the cool air on. Yeah, like we have to, we have to keep things hot in the winter. Cameron, that that yeah, music exactly. means that I have talked to you beyond my time. That is the studio's <laughs> way of reminding me it is time to be quiet now. Cameron Stevenson writes and uh, edits the Copper Courier. It's a wonderful news site. Thank you, Cameron, for being here. That's good Thank do you it for so me. Much, um, driving at home with Patty Vasquez is next, and I apologize, Patty. I've run over into your time. Um, I will see you tomorrow if they let me come back. Have a great evening. Good night.